Welcome to the Success Inspired Podcast, a business and personal development podcast to help you accomplish more in life and realize your true potential. And now here is your host, Fit Muller. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode on a Success Inspired Podcast. My guest today is a world-renowned addiction expert who believes addiction is a thinking problem, not a drinking problem or a using problem. He has helped over 6,000 people ranging from celebrities to everyday people who want to live in sustained sobriety and recovery. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Rob Kelly. Thank you, Beth. Good to be here. Absolutely Absolutely. great to be here. Great to have you on the show, mate. So I've introduced you a little bit, but what's something that a lot of people don't know about? Well, they call me the addiction doctor uh, because I specialize in addiction. I started drinking at the age of nine, and I have a chronic alcohol problem. I've not drank for, for some time now, but yeah, it ruined my life, ruined my children's life, and you know the ups and downs of alcohol. So my first drink at the age of nine on stage with my musical family, and the, you know the stories are horrendous, leading to homelessness, and then back to where I am today. So the journey has been wild, absolutely wild. And my book goes into that. It's like a lows of the lows, highs of the highs, then back lows of the lows again, and then I end up here. And so I'm in San Antonio, Texas, although I'm originally from Manchester, United Kingdom. But I've been in Texas for about 14 years now, and I love me some Texas. <laughs> so what led to that? I mean, music family, was it, was it the surrounding? Or you said st- started drinking at nine years old? Is yeah, that- I started drinking at nine. My uncle gave me a beer between sets one and two. And uh, I took the beer and wow, it was just amazing. Made me feel good. It gave me loads of confidence. So every time we played Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I would, I would start drinking. And, and it was just, you know, probably half a glass of beer, that's all. But it was enough to get me rocking and rolling and, you know, having a great time. So that's why I did. I wasn't drinking alcoholically then. Alcohol was working for me throughout many, many years, including high school and um, college. And then probably when I got married to my wife and had two kids, that's when he started to turn on me and really things went really wrong for me. What happened? Well, when I got married, I, I was drinking heavily when I got married, but there's a couple of things I'm not proud of, but one of them was that I was drinking alcoholically and I, I woke up at two or three in the morning, four o'clock and come downstairs to the kitchen to find some vodka and I found it and I put it on the side of the kitchen counter for a second while I turned around and got a crystal glass. And as I did, my wife had quietly followed me downstairs and she snatched a bottle of vodka from the counter and she held it against the chest and she says, I think you've had enough. Now, she was probably right because I've been drinking all the time and I was due to go to work in about four hours time. So what I should have said is thank you, it's just carrying gone back to bed, unfortunately. What I did was took a kitchen knife out and stabbed her three times. And as she went to the floor bleeding, I got my bottle of vodka, finished it off, call a taxi, call the police. And the taxi right was just literally around the corner. So we pulled up within a minute and I waited so that I could hear the sirens. I jumped in the taxi cab and I fled to Spade and stayed in Spade uh, for some time until they promised and signed contracts legal documents that I would not be charged with the attempted uh, murder. It's pretty bad, but I wasn't the worst. It got worse than that. Got a lot worse than that. When I lost my children, that was the most devastating part of my life. But it happened, you know, after 
after the stabbing incident, we lived in this beautiful house, very, very large house, brand new cars. You know, my business was thriving. And when I came back from Spain, literally on the day I flew back, I got a taxi back home. And as I walked into the door, she had three suitcases packed and the children ready to go. And as I walked in the door, so she said to me, she said, Rob, I'll love you till the day I die, but you're not going to kill our kids. And then she left and I was so angry. I was screaming at her and the children was there. And there's probably ages one and three. And they could hear this going on. So I, in a drunken rage, called my attorney and, and threatened him that if he didn't get my kids back within 24 hours, and I wasn't going to do any business with him. And we did a lot of money with this guy. So he went to court and somehow the next day he turned up with my children. He got some sort of court order worked in, in my favor and I got my children back. So I remember taking them into the living room. I give this guy a big check for do doing what he did. And I brought into the living room. And I was so proud that I could be dad. Like, cause I knew nobody was taking them. That was it. You don't do that to me. Cause I will retaliate. And what happened was I sang in front of the TV, went into the kitchen and I thought, wouldn't it be great if I just had one drink to celebrate the children coming back. And then three days later, the police bust the door down. I had no idea between them three days I'd been drinking solidly. My children had not been fed or, or changed diapers for two days. And they served with unfit father papers and neglect and all that stuff it had in it. And then they grabbed my two children and mom got the three-year-old and they started to walk down the path and everybody was crying. And even sat state, my daughter said three things and she said, daddy, daddy, please don't go. And as she walked further down the path, she turned around again and she says, daddy, daddy, please get better. And as he got to the gate and opened the gate, she turned around one more final time and she says, daddy, daddy, please stop drinking. And I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I went back in the house. I opened another bottle of vodka. I remember around about three, four, I don't know, I don't know how long it was, maybe two, three months later, I was homeless. The house had gone, the cars had gone, my kids had gone, my wife had gone, the license had gone. The business closed down. I went from that house to my mum's house, lasted three days at my mum's house. She threw me out because of drinking. Went to friends and friends to acquaintances and from acquaintances sitting on the streets. Slept in a bus shell on the first night and my, my acquaintance threw me out. And then I went to the middle of Manchester, it's like a garden there and old benches. And I, I stayed there for 14 months. Nobody would speak to me. Nobody, when I called home, they put a song down on me. So I was abandoned on the streets. And uh, I remember on the first night thinking, what the hell just happened? Why did all that go wrong? Because I'm the guy that played at Abbey Road. I'm the guy that's friends with Elton John, Bowie, Queen, all them guys, you know? I remember at that, you know, John's house once with a couple of other famous guys. And we laughed and looked at each other and Elton said, Where did, when did we all go wrong? And it was kind of funny because they were all rich. But I had that thought again when I was on the streets because I didn't have anything. I had no nothing to my name. I had to beg for alcohol. And when I could I couldn't beg for money to get alcohol, then I'd go and steal it. So I got arrested a few times and just drunk and disorderly and, you know, vagrants and stuff like that. I get picked up. So yeah, it, was, it wasn't, it wasn't good. And, and the way I survived back then was I would, uh, I would beat people up after nightclubs to get money and rob the wallets and I'd do anything for alcohol. My life was a 14 month alcohol binge. I never came out of. And suicide attempts, 
six suicide attempts on two occasions have succeeded. And they, the EMTs brought me back to life again, which I was really annoyed about because it was like cry for help. I wanted to kill myself. I couldn't live anymore. And yeah, life was pretty bad then. Wow. I've lost for words. I know many, many people are when you see me. Well, a lot of people heard of me, obviously, and not, a lot of people know who I am. And when you sit down, I, I did a, I did a charity thing the other day for veterans and first responders. And I tell my story and the room is shocked because I look at what I do today, you know, and, and how famous I am. If famous is a word, I don't know, but how recognized I am with my TV and my books and, and all that stuff I do. But when you sit down telling the story, everyone's reaction is like yours, that silence. It's like, first time it happened, I'm like, did I scare anybody? Or people are just like, oh my God, you know, it's just crazy, crazy world. So, yeah. What was, what was the main premise of your addiction? Because you said that, you know, your, your uncle gave you a sip of beer when you were nine. So it was more like a, just for pleasure, like just it gave you confidence. It wasn't to deal with any, any issues, right? Was that the main reason why you keep going? Because it was helping you with the confidence or what was the trigger for you later on? And why did you keep going? Well, it, what happens is <clears throat> since I came off the streets for the last, I don't know how many years, 20, 30, I've been studying the alcoholic brain and the addicted brain and alcoholism as a whole and become a specialist at it, neuroplasticity. And neuroscience is what I study today. So I'm going back. I was born an alcoholic. So alcoholics are born. You can't drink enough alcohol to make you an alcoholic. You may abuse alcohol, but an alcoholic is not somebody who drinks so much alcohol. And people are amazed by that. So I'm born this way. It's a predisposition passed down from my parents. Might skip a generation, skip my generation of my brother. Didn't touch him at all, but me, I got it. So the first time I took alcohol into my body, it's only a matter of time before it all went wrong. So alcohol worked for a long time for me, a real long time and give me so much confidence. I was like 15, 16 when I went for the job at Abbey Road and people were laughing at me. It's like this kid walked in with this huge guitar and you have all these veteran bass players waiting you know, to, to audition for this prestige position. And I didn't give a shit. I was like half drunk. I walked in, cocky, sat down, got my guitar, I played it. The stuff they told me to play, and then manuscripts, and then just just left and went home. And I did that seven times, and finally got the job. You know, so alcohol really was working for me a lot of times. Through college, it did. You know, I'd mix with cocaine and speed, amphetamines, and yeah, I I tried coming off alcohol for a month, but I'd use amphetamines and cocaine, and then I'd make sure I'm not got drug problems. So I went back to alcohol for a few years and. It just bounced back. So I'm, I was, I was hooked from the first drink. So it's really interesting how the brain works because, because we're born this way, uh, our brain is, well, my brain is allergic to the ethanol in alcohol, you know, when it's drug addicts, they have to take certain amounts of drugs. They like it. Then they become addicted to it. And the addiction and alcohol is show up the same, but it's not quite the same. It's a little tiny difference. It doesn't mean treatment differs or 12-step groups doesn't differ. That's not talking about that. I'm talking about the precise uh, change with the, with the ethanol and, and, the, and my brain being remapped, especially from trauma. Every alcoholic has trauma, period. I'm not even going to argue with anybody about that. Six and a half thousand patients down the line, I can categorically say that every alcoholic has trauma. 
So the charm of mixed with my disposition has been passed on to me. I never stood a chance. He was always going to end up homeless, always. Or jail for life. How I didn't kill anybody, I don't know. I battered people, I stabbed people, I, you know, when I was on the streets just to survive. So, you know, I could have quite easily ended up in prison for the rest of my life. In fact, there was one crazy time when I was actually thinking of killing someone because I know where to go. So they, they put me in jail for my life. At least got some food every day. And the thoughts, of, the crazy thoughts that went through your head like during that, that uh, 14 months is just crazy because you watch life going on around you and you're just stalking. People walk over you, spit at you, you know, and then you ask for money, they're nasty to you. And it, it's just horrible. I kept saying, do you know, do you know, do you know who I am? And I get with all these drunks and all those people and go, hey, you know, I'm a doctor. And they would laugh like crazy. They would laugh like crazy. I said, no, I'm trying to be a doctor, you know. That's my idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down and do this. Then they laughed and laughed. And then when I told them I played with all these nice famous people, they laughed and laughed. Because, of course, it wasn't true. As far as they're concerned, I was just another bomb on the streets. But I'd done all these amazing things, but alcoholism still took it away. Let's turn it on the positive here a little bit, because this is all very dark and gloomy and very shocking. When I was preparing for this interview, I know you sent me a bio and, and about what you do now, and you've kind of hinted on what, what your past was, but I had no idea how, how, how bad it was. So I definitely want to talk to you about how did you get through all that. But before we get to that, I'm also curious, what was that job like in, in Abbey Road? I loved it. I passed the audition and you know, I'd play maybe four times a week. So in case people don't know, the way session musicians work, it's usually you're stepping in for a bass player or guitar player, whatever. Mine was bass. So you step in for a bass uh, player when he was sick or ill. But what tends to happen in those days is the band would, would, band would be given like, I don't know, half a million dollars to produce the, the first single or album. They'd go out and do that. It hit the charts. They would get the first paycheck now, when it comes to making the second album, you know, Johnny was drunk all the time. Billy's overdosed on heroin. So they would bring session players in to lay the tracks down. So I would go in many times. I wouldn't see whose song it was, but I remember, you know, when, when, when Freddie Mercury came in and we did some tracks together and you know, you never know what it is. You just do your tracking piece. They'll give you music, your bass part, and you just play it. But we, we spent, we spent many early morning times drinking coffee and, and, and talking about life. It was absolutely phenomenal, but most of the time I'm drunk or wasted. So I didn't really appreciate it back then, but it was a prestigious job. I never thought of it like that. I just thought it was another job. Anybody can do this. I didn't appreciate because I don't think you do when you, when you, when you're a kid, you know, when you're under 21, it's just like things were meant to happen. You go through them. You don't appreciate them until you get older. You go, wow. So annoying person would be Elton John when he gets in his moods. The most amazing person would be Freddie, who's one of the most amazing persons I've ever seen. And yeah, he was just amazing. I was going to college as well. Money from that put me through college because no one in our family had gone to college before. So I was the first, I went to Oxford, you know, I was earning all this money and joined the Freemasons at an early age because they needed an organist. And it's like all my life was going amazing. But yeah, it was good. And everything since that, there's been a little ups and downs, but most of the time, my life just took off like crazy. And no matter what I turn my hand to, usually it works. That would have been amazing with all these musicians. Imagine, imagine where it could have been if 
you know, if you didn't end up on a straight, if you didn't, yeah, if, if what happened didn't happen. But it's if and if and with, right? Well, let's not worry about that. Let's talk about future and let's talk about how did you, how did you overcome it? How did you turn your, turn your life around? Well, I'm on the streets after the 14 months. It's pouring down with rain. I've just coming out of an alcoholic binge, but I don't have any alcohol. It's past mid, it's around two, three o'clock in the morning. And I strolled across the back end of Manchester in the United Kingdom and people where, where nobody goes, it's just a dark road with cobblestones on. And I dropped to my hands and knees and I started crying, you know, like a baby from my stomach. Pain in my stomach was horrible. I remember looking up to this, I'm never a religious person, but I just said, if there's a God up there, can't do this on my own anymore. And about 30 seconds later, a guy walked around the corner. He'd missed his last bus home from a Bible study. And he bumped into me. He said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm dying. And he took me back to his house. He happened to be an alcoholic. And uh, he took me back and he said, hey, I've been where you are. You can stay there for as long as you like. We just want to get you well and help you. And that's where my, my journey started to where I am today. So it's like everything was meant to be like, you know, I got in that house and then after I, I met this other guy in a 12 step room and he said he would take me through some, you know, programs and this, this great book to educate myself. And he told me that I, I, I need never drink again. And my life could be amazing. So I clung onto this guy and went through the stuff and he said, your life's going to change from now on. Your life's going to change after I went there for about eight weeks, I think every Wednesday night. And sure enough, after I finished with him, I got a part-time job, turned into a full-time job. Then somebody at the place gave me a car, a mini car. It wasn't amazing, but it was enough to get me to work and back. Then I moved into a really nice, it's like sober house. And then from there, I got an apartment and just started building and building. And then I'm speaking to this girl, you know, early kind of internet chat rooms. And we started talking and she was in Dallas, Texas which I thought was really glamorous because I'd seen the Dallas TV program years ago. So we're chatting away and then she just said, Hey, my local church, you know, there's a big crack cocaine problem. Would you ever think of coming over for like four days and doing some seminars? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So she arranged that. So they could, we got the date and everything and I had the tickets and ready and about a week before I was about to come, I started packing my stuff slowly, but surely as I washed it, I packed it. I got my passport out and it expired by about five, six days. I was like, holy, oh no. So I didn't call her because I was panicked and, and embarrassed. So I got down to Liverpool, which is 35 mile drive. And I took it to the passport office and he looked at it and he said, do you want it expediting? So I said, yeah, I need it in like six days. And he said, oh no, expediting is about four weeks. It's normally 12 weeks, but we can get it through fast and forward. So I just... I didn't know what to do. So I just said, okay, I'll pay the money and that's it. And I went back home and I was supposed to fly on a Saturday and this was like the Tuesday. And I was so scared of calling her or getting on the chat room with her to say I couldn't come. And then the day before I was supposed to fly. So the Friday, there was a knock at the door and my passport arrived. So when I looked back, all them things started to happen to me. And I came over here for two or three, four days only. And when I put my foot down on American soil at Dallas International Airport, BFW, I knew I was never going to go home. And that's what happened. We got all my licenses, dropped over to America and we started a practice in Dallas, Texas. 
and uh, never looked back. And that was about 14 years ago. But when she reached out to you, you were already doing this type of stuff or was it just kind of as a result of her talking to you and you talking to her about how you've overcome addiction? I was kind of already doing it, but not full-time. I was only doing a part-time basis. I had another job to pay the real bills. But yeah, our, our story was she was married to an alcoholic before the divorce. So that's how the conversation started. But, you know, I did have a little bit of a reputation, nothing like it is now, but it was just, I guess it was some sort of calling or something that I was on. But, you know, best thing I ever did, if it wasn't for speaking to that lady, um, I would never be here. Because I never dreamed of coming over to America. I'd never been to America. The furthest I'd been from our country, England, was Spain. And that's like an hour and a half away. I would even dream of traveling 12, it used to be 12 hours all them years ago. Now they do it in nine, I think. But I wouldn't even dream of doing that, but I did. And I'm here. So you were saying like you wanted to you wanted to do something about the alcoholism and about the drug addiction problem. And you kept cycling through like when it was too much drug addiction, you went back to alcoholism and, and, and obviously it sounded like you kind of wanted to do something about it, but, but in a way it was, it sounds like it was also th thankfully due to the, to the series of events that happened meeting, that, meeting that was that priest meeting that guy on the street. Let's yes. call him a priest. I'm not sure if he was a priest, but let's call him priest. And then. And then chatting to that girl in Dallas and then that sort of opened up the door for, for what you do now. But I'm sure there'll be a lot of listeners right now that might be, you know, where you were before, perhaps, you know, thinking about this as, you know, like, it sounds like you kind of got lucky, you know? Well, I, I guess some breaks will be good, but I've, I've also studied a little bit of quantum physics, you know, due to the alcoholic brain. And I, I can categorically stand here and say to you that. If you want something bad enough, it happens. So whatever you can visualize in your mind, you can hold in your hand. That's a guaranteed fact, but people don't dream that. They don't even think that. But what I want to say to people, if, you, if you're sat at home and you're thinking you, you, you're a piece of crap or you're never going to amount to anything or this is your lot in life, I want to apologize to you because somebody's put that there. We're not born this way. We're born with million-dollar minds. Yet we tend to hang around 10 cent millions. It's like, if you want it bad enough, you'll get it. If you want information about recovery, you'll get it. If you want to earn $60,000 a year and you're only earning 20 right now, start hanging around the guys that earn 60 grand a year. All these things, quantum physics and, and the way the world is in the universe, it all works in a certain way. And to crack that code, is just amazing. I mean, I've worked with six and a half thousand people since doing this job. And most of them that I know have gone on to lead an amazing life because, you know, whether you believe in God or the universe or something, something up there is looking after each and every one of us. It's got nothing to do with religion. You know, it's a spiritual path. But if you, if you realize that and then start acting like we should, you know, being kind to another human being, always help when you can, always say kind words, do work on yourself especially your childhood trauma. And when you get through the, all that, things start to happen really quick because that's what happened to me. The guy I finally went through the work with, who I walked to see every Wednesday evening for eight weeks, when I, when I finally finished with him, about one or two weeks after that, I got my first paycheck. I got a little teddy bear and a card. And I walked back to that man's house like I had been doing for eight weeks. And when I got there, there was nobody in. 
And I banged that door on the apartment and the next, next lady come on the ne next door to me and says, can I help you? And I said, can you tell me where John's relocated to? And she said, there's been no one in that apartment for at least six months that I've been here. So I went around to the other side and knocked on the, uh, this guy and walked to the door and I said, hey, got a loony tunes next door. She doesn't remember. I came here for about eight weeks. Do you remember John? And he said, John, there's been no one that name living here. I know that apartment's been empty for at least a year and I could never trace him. You see, I wanted it bad enough and, and, and whoever it is looking after me, guy called God looking after me, sent me the right people when I wanted. But if you're happy sitting at home and not doing anything with your life and struggling for money and stuff like that, you're never going to get any help. No one's going to come to the door, knock on your door and go, hey, here's a $100,000 job that you can have. You have to go out and seek it. And everybody is capable of seeking it. You see, there's no difference between me on the streets and, and, and me now. The only difference is the guy on the street wanted this badly. You look up around your city, you see these big CEOs earning a million dollars a year. The only difference between you and him is he wants it better than you. It's got nothing to do with education. College is, is not, a college degree does not get you a hundred grand a year job these days. You know, I know people with, with doctorates, you know, and, and masters that are working at Kentucky Fried Chicken and, and McDonald's. I mean, it's how bad you want it. The world is at our fingertips right now especially with everyone's online, especially through COVID, you know, this is the time to shine. This is the time when you can turn your computer into a million dollar business. Instead of saying, I want to build a company, why don't you start saying to yourself, I want to build an empire? Because that's where the thought patterns comes and then neural pathways will be firing. Where did you go? Because most alcoholics are born with self-sabotaging neural pathways, which means I could go for a week, a month, sometimes even a year, building up this business and making this bright outlook for each future. And then I go on a series of, of sprees and drunken episodes and then ruin everything. You know, the more self-care neural pathways we have in our brain, the better chance we stand of becoming a success. And then of course, you've got to look at what is success. Is success working a nine to five job, looking at my family? Yes. Is, is success getting my children back for the weekend of my wife? Yes. All these little journeys and all these little wins that we have, you must take advantage of them and realize there's always somebody worse off than you. When I was on the streets, it was, there was people worse off than me. I saw people on the streets that couldn't walk. They were in wheelchairs. I saw surgeons on the street because of alcohol, like real, real heart surgeons, you know, uh, and, you know, they, they, they just lost everything because of alcohol. But if you want it bad enough, it'll come. That's how the universe works. It's like, if you convince yourself, like internal dialogue is very important for success. If I drop a pen on the floor, I used to say, oh, what a stupid idiot. Stop saying that because your brain, the subconscious brain will take that in. Just like your parents said, stop doing that. You'll never be clever enough. No, you can't go to college, Rob. You're not as clever as your brother. You know, all this stuff that we take in as teenagers, we tend to carry on through adult life. I've dropped a pen on the floor. I'm not a stupid idiot. I've just dropped a pen on my head and my subconscious brain will take that in. And there we go with new neural pathways, healthy ones. So when the rubber hits the road and I want to self-sabotage, there are more healthy neural pathways and there are billions than there are self-sabotaging. And that's one of the keys to success. You can have anything you want. Don't let anybody tell you any different. I came from the project, from the council estates. I was the, I was the kid that waved the school bus off because they were going on a camping trip four miles away at the local park, but my mom and dad couldn't afford to pay for me to go. 
trauma, PTSD from that. I'm that guy. And look at me today. And I'm actually waving a flag for, for anybody who's been left behind, anybody that, that's had trauma as a kid, anybody that's living on the poverty line. That's not the way you do it, guys. Come on. We all know we can do this. It's easy. Once you get in mind, just find out, find out the why and the how will come. Find out the why. What's your why? My why, why is I wanted to spread the news of addiction and alcoholism and joy to everybody that I meet. And the how came? America, here we go, boom. The last program I was on, which to 18 million people. That's a big platform. And that's why I, that's why I want to when I came. And I surround myself by the right people. When I first came to America, I had a couple of friends that weren't any good, but I didn't know any different. And I said to them, well, I want to, I want to, I'm sick of writing a book. And they were like, there's no way. I'm sorry, but there's no way. They're not going to do it. So I left it for a few years. Got up. When I come to San Antonio, six, I don't know how long ago it was. I surround myself with a bunch of guys. And I said one day, you know, we're all drinking coffee, thinking of writing a book. And their reply was, wow, we thought he'd already wrote one. That's a great idea. So it's the people, you know, show me your friends. I'll show you your future. That whole rewiring your brain. I'm a firm believer. And it's, it's so great to hear it from you as well. Like just strengthen that message because it is absolutely true. It's, it's, it's the moment you, you refocus your thoughts to do something more positive, right? That's going to shift your actions. It's going to shift your circumstances, but it doesn't happen overnight, right? Like if you're talking about the, how you're wired, like how you're wired toward, uh, let's say self-sabotage. So that's literally like your neurons are fired towards that. So that's what always triggers those thoughts. So if you want to change that, it's kind of like, I think I've said the analogy in the podcast before, I would say, think about it like a highway. Right? As, a, as, a, as a highway and as a, as, a, as a thick traffic and you're stuck in that traffic and you have to move along the same way like the rest of the traffic and that's kind of where you are now. In order to change that, you kind of need to create a new pathway. So you kind of have to break through the, break through the uh, what, what do you call those things on the side of the road, those, those barriers, yeah. barriers, yeah. right? Have to break through the barriers and imagine there's a thick bush around those on, the, on either side of the road. So you're going to drive there. The first time you're going to drive in into that bush, you know, you're going you're to have to like cut through some trees and it's going to be hard. But behind you, you've already cleared a little bit of a path. So the next time you're going to go in there again, you're going to clear up a little bit more of the path and then keep going. All right. Maybe you've got a machete. You can keep chopping the bushes and keep going forward. You're clearing that path. And sooner than later, as you keep going further and further, like chipping away just a little bit by bit, behind you, stuff starts to grow starts to you know start to grow behind you so it's going to be harder and harder to come back that's kind of how i think about like yeah. pathways like more you stay focused on the positive the other virus starts to disconnect yeah we have, we have a way of pointing it's repetition strengthens and confirms the more you do it the easier it become it's like being a pilot something like fifty thousand. i don't know how many hours are needed to fly up you know a jumbo jet or something get the hours in get the neural pathways flying it's like, you've got to be careful what you say and what you do. So if you're doing healthy neural pathways, if you're cutting off and going down that bush every single day, then the path becomes normal. So even sometimes when you come on that freeway and it's not that busy, your normal path would be pushed off to the side because you know that works, it's quicker, and I'm safe. So the more we use it, the more, the more we get. But we have to watch what we see and what we hear. I'll give you a quick example right now. It's like the, if people are saying the wrong things around you, 
you're going to take that in. So if you hang around nine dep depressed people, you will become the number 10. You know, it's simple as that. So what I'll say to everybody listening now really quickly is concentrate for a second. And I'm going to ask you not to do something. Please do not do it. Whatever happens, don't think of an elephant. Damn it, you all thought of an elephant. That's how, that's how easy it is to convince someone that they're not any good, they're a waste of time, and they'll never amount to anything. You've only got to look at the past. The superstars have passed away from one or two comets, the girl from the Carpenters. Somebody says she was fat. Next minute, she died of anorexia. And you know, we've got to have taken the good things. Repetition strengthening confirms you have to realize how powerful you are. Every human being can be a powerful force. We're empowered to do amazing stuff, but it's what we people tell us. You know, you never be any good, blah, blah, blah. And they don't really mean it. And the abandonment, the shame, the guilt, the trauma that we carry as a child. And parents don't mean to do it, but they do it. Everybody does. So when you get older, it's about going back and doing that work. Getting back to the scene of the crime, as we call it, and make sure that you clear all that stuff up. You clear the abandonment up. Well, we lived in a million-dollar house, one patient said. They said, how often did you see your dad? Oh, just Sunday for an hour. Why? We was working all the time. That's abandonment. That's PTSD. You're going to carry for the rest of your life. And every single time, especially with women, no relationships have ever worked because a dad used to leave all week apart from an hour. So it affects the relationships. It, it involves our success. I met Arnold Schwarzenegger back in 1979. He just released an underground movie called Pumping Iron. And he was doing a little seminar in England. And I was a semi-professional bodybuilder at the time. So, and a couple of others were chosen to go and pick him up at the airport and show him his hotel and just stay with him, keep his company. I got into some serious talks with Arnold, even though his English was very broken. He came from Graz in Austria, very broken, but he said three things to me that always stuck in my mind. And I said, what, what's the future for you, Arnold? I mean, this bodybuilding is good, but it's not taking off. You can't earn money out of it. And he says, I don't intend to earn money about it. But I, one day, I want to be the highest paid movie actor in the world. We kind of smiled and embarrassed and thinking, the guy, the guy can't even speak English. You know, never mind, movie star, check. Then he said to us, I want to be a governor of a state, preferably California. We started laughing even more, check. And then he said to us, the final thing that made us burst out laughing, he said he wanted to marry into the Kennedy family, check. All these things that he did, he put his mind to. You have to realize how powerful we are as human beings and individuals. I remember having him at Ferrari once and he pulled up at the, I didn't, well, wasn't winning this, a story I know to be true. He pulled up at traffic lights and some kids pulled in a normal car trying to race him. And as they sped off with squealing, he just took off at five miles an hour and carried on. And he said, his message from that was, if you know how powerful you are, you'd have to prove it to anybody. Just make things happen. Going to be rich, you know, like a basketball court, quantum physics. I can be 25 places at the same time on that court, quantum physics. Okay, well, where do I want to be? I want to be over near the goal. So when I get the ball, I'm going to smack it in the goal. I'm going to be the hero of the game. Can you see yourself there? My mentor says, I says, yeah, I can see myself there. Yeah. How do I get there though? And his reply was, would, would drop me down on my knees. He said, walk over and take the position, Rob. Like, what? You've already visualized it. Walk over and take the position. And that's where many people go wrong because they visualize something and think, oh no, wow, that's crazy. I can't do that. Well, you think Apple guys come from and Google guys and Amazon guys 
I have a picture of the Amazon guy in a tiny little office with a, with a canvas at the back of it, sprayed on, say, Amazon, selling five bucks a week. But he had a dream and he had a vision and he believed in it. He believed. Netflix did the same, you know, with everybody who's selling videos and renting videos. They've tried to go and, you know, help work with Blockbuster. And Blockbuster said, no, you're too small. You can't do anything. Well, someone in Netflix, and I'll take it as a CEO, said, screw you. We can do everything we want to do. And sooner or later, the Blockbusters go out of, out of business because of Netflix. It's all about knowing. It's all about belief. It's all about walking forward and every single day making sure stuff happens. And a champion's way to do this is when you get up in the morning, write five things down that you're going to do that day. Even if it's breakfast, lunch, visit the dentist, go for that interview, buy wife some flowers, put it down every morning. And then five things cross off as you go through the day. And if you've completed five things when you finish the day, you've moved forward to your dream. And if you've only done four of them because you were too busy, then you've taken a step back. We don't believe in this country. That's the problem. Take the breaks off your imagination. Take them off. Because every single body can do what I've done. I'm not, I wish I could sit here and tell you how special I am and how amazing. I'm nothing special. I just had a dream and a vision. This is great what you just said. Like I was, I was going to ask you about that. Like how can somebody, <clears throat> how can somebody that is in a really, really dark place, what would be like the easiest first step? And so this is great. Like focus on something super simple. Like even if it's like, I'm going to yeah eat a breakfast today, I'm going to eat lunch and I'm going to eat dinner and I'm going to go for five minutes walk. Something that is super low key, right? And by accomplishing those things, that's like that first step. Like it's going to give you a bit of a satisfaction. Some, something like you can say, okay, I, I thought about doing it and I did it and I've accomplished it. And accomplished. That's it. The brain, the brain takes it as a success. You want to start the day off great of succeeding something? Make laughter to a momentum tournament. I'm not making my bed. I have to make your bed, Rob. And I did it. And the brain looks at it as, as a win. You, you do four of them a day. All of a sudden, you're winning at every single thing you do. And once your imagination is fired, ask for that job. Go for that job. Ask for that girlfriend or that boyfriend. Ask for that house. There's no reason at all why you can't do it. You just need to set your life out. Plan every single day when you get up. Make bed, lunch, dinner, walk, flowers. Next day, make bed, go for a 10-mile run. You know, apply for that. Just get five things every single day in the, the night before. Write them down. And the brain will get used to success all the time. That's all it is. And, and, the, and the more the subconscious brain loads them new neural pathways and ideas, when you come to self-sabotage, which is, oh my God, I've got an interview tomorrow. Oh my God. Oh my God. The brain's not going to do that. The brain is going to go, yeah, this is yours. This is yours. Walk in. We, we prep. The highest paid actors and footballers, we, we work with them and normal guys sweeping the road. We, we, we prep them for that job. One of the guys we had in who I took into my private clinic in Texas, I picked him up from jail, or we did. There was a bunch of us picked him up from jail. And uh, this judge says, I'm going to release him to you, Dr. Rob. But let me tell you categorically that if he goes missing, because he always did, he, he was a runner then. And this is a broken down actor who, who, who Hollywood had had enough of him. And we took him back to our ranch and we convinced him that within 90 days, he was going to be the biggest movie star ever, ever. And we worked on him and we worked on him and everybody in the clinic worked on him every time in the past looking great. Oh my God, you're amazing. Wow. 
everyone and, and he started to believe it. They got more confidence. And two weeks before he was due to leave, a, letter, a big parcel came in the mail. And the, and, the, and the chauffeur went down to the gate to pick you up and he brought it up to the house. He said, Dr. Rob, there's the package for you guy. And I walked him and I passed it in. And he looked at this package and he looked at me and he opened it and he, he pulled it out and he went, oh my God, it's a script for Iron Man. And that, the rest is history. That was a Robert Downey Jr. Wow. And the rest is history. And that's how you do life. You know, that's how we do life today. I've had a guy who also wanted to do, wanted to be the former, he wanted the manager of this road crew that went around sweeping roads. That was his ambition. And that's all he wanted to do. We prepped him for that. When the interview was time, he walked in, he snatched that job. He'd already, he's already got it before he walked in. He was so confident, not cocky, but confident that he would get this, that they almost didn't interview him. He walked in proud, he sat down, he, he looked him straight in the eye and he started off with about, what do I do, what I'm about, why do I want this job and how I could make you proud of the success. And so within four or five minutes of him leaving, they called me up and said, you've got the job. This is what life's about. But people are scared. I can't do that. Wow, not me. I'm not that clever. I beg to differ. Million dollar mind. Going to college for four years doesn't make you anything special. You know, especially these days. If you want to know a complicated answer or riddle or math, Google it. Google it. Well, the answers are there. You know, you could be the smartest man in the room if you spend some time on Google and find out what stuff's about. So the, the, the game has changed, guys. It really has changed. There's, there's more unemployed PhDs than there are working PhDs. That's all I'm saying about that. That's so powerful. Rob, have you got anything for small business owners? You know, you keep hearing this, you know, yeah, not now. Yeah, we can't afford you. What would you say to that? What would be something that you've, you've, you've used, like a, maybe a phrase or? Yeah, well, I was a, obviously a small business owner. If, if, if not now, when? Guys, if not now, when? I often ask people when I, when I go into companies, like who? What's your most valuable asset? And they go, oh, our staff. Wrong. Most valuable asset is the customer. You know, one or two people working for you. It's unbelievable what we can create these days on your own, on the internet. Treat everybody nice. Inspire. No matter if you have one customer or two, do the best you can every day with them. And, and, and it's like, a, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a smiling or laughing. It's contagious. And people, word of mouth is the best form of advertising in this world ever. And now everybody's gone indoors. It's even better. You know, we reach more people, more people are our more of the day. You know, it's just like, if you want to stay a small business owner, do it with pride. Whether you're cleaning somebody's windows or whether you're, you know, educating somebody to work at the highest computer in the world, do it with pride. Do it because you want to do it. You know, I, I used to get up on a, on a, on a Sunday especially Sunday night and go, oh my God, it's work tomorrow. If you're doing that, guys, you're in the wrong job. I created a company that people get up on, on a, you know, a Sunday, have a great day and Sunday night and think, oh my God, it's amazing. I've got work tomorrow. It's all about passion. Get passion, have passion about whatever you do and have belief, have belief that you're going to be a success. Start living as if you're going to be a success. The guys that come here, they broken down. I take them to the Porsche dealerships. And I let them drive around in 9-11s worth $150,000. I take him to the million dollar listings and we walk around as if we're going to buy it. And the reason why I do that is he's already acting like a millionaire. So when he comes and it will, the brain doesn't freak out. Oh my God, this, this is an expensive car. He gets in the car and his brain goes, oh yeah, I remember this. 
this is very comfortable, you know? So always think positive. Everybody has bad days. Well, I don't have bad days. I have better days than others. But everyone has down days. Come on, this is not about you as a business owner. This is about your customs. This is how you can provide to a local community or nationwide a service with love, kindness, and care. And I tell you something now. If it doesn't work, call me. I'll give you a half a million or something. You know, it always works. It's proven, tried, success, route to go down in. Rob, this whole interview, amazing. I told you, we good tonight. Yeah, we really turned it around, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very dark and gloomy, especially I was shocked when you said that. Yeah. That you stabbed your wife and started to bring yeah. him back up. But that was, you know, I was, I was kind of half like, what the hell? Yeah, the madness of what I went through. It was insanity is where I was. So, yeah, but there's always a good turn. See, I had to go through that bit to become the person I am today. All that, all that stuff that I went through was like a semester at Harvard. The knowledge, information, and gift that I have today for pass on to other people. That's what it's all about. Whether you're selling bananas, you're selling corporate jets, it makes no difference. How can I best serve thee today? Tell us about what do you guys do now? with your business and, you know, some of your achievements, what you've done. We're, we're Rob Kelly Recovery Group or Rob Kelly Group. The, the website is robkelly.com, which is R-O-B-B, two Bs, spell the name of two Bs, Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y.com. We have, we have that business and we have five of us around the world. We have Dallas, Texas. We have San Antonio, Texas. We have Manchester, United Kingdom. We have Mallorca in Spain and we have Zurich in Switzerland. Out of five offices we use, most of our work, is, is honest and, and pro bono, depending on, on, you know, we have a 20% pro bono of things so we're always giving back. We spent over $100,000 last year giving back into the communities around the country and sometimes around the world. We, we've, we've often, when you're working with, you know, young moms whose, whose father has left because of alcoholics or alcoholic dads who want the kids back for the weekend, you know, we will gift them money and we will buy them, you know, a little car. We will pay the first six months rent in that apartment. We just help people and give back on a daily basis. There's always a request coming in for people that are, you know, really in a bad, bad state because that's what we do. You know, we do a lot of other charitable. I did a charity thing two or three day, nights ago. Where I did it for uh, war veterans, EMTs and, and uh, police officers. And it was a P PTSD talk. So we do lots of talks, lots of training. We run a recovery um, coach course as well four times a year. It's uh, 10 weeks, 100 hours, and we do that as well. But yeah, we just um, do a lot of radio, a lot of TV, as you know, and uh, thinking of writing my second book. And funny enough, if you, and the book, by the way, is on Amazon and in Walmart, and every single dime or penny goes straight back into the community. We take no profits off it. All, everything goes back into the communities. And we thought we'd name it the last thing my daughter said to me, which was, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. So that's the name in the book, but just to cap everything, just to prove to everybody that things can be turned around is my youngest daughter all these years and I've never been in contact with me, but three years ago, four years ago, my eldest daughter contacted me on Facebook through messenger. And she says, dad, I've just seen you on TV. You know, I want to, I want to meet you because I've not seen her since she was three. So I flew over to England and we had a great meeting at the front door. And then she took me into her apartment and she introduced me to my three month old granddaughter. And my heart 
was absolutely broken. It was just beautiful, beautiful love. And then after conversations of being there for a few days, she said, I want to do what you do, Dan. I want to become a neuro-linguistic programmer. And there's a course and I'll become a therapist. So I paid for her to go through the course. And six months ago, she opened my Manchester office. So now she works for dad. And that's not that's longer drunk and a bummer. Congratulations to that. That's incredible. Rob, let's wrap this up. This was amazing. So what would be the top three biggest takeaways you'd like our listeners to walk away with after listening today? Believe in yourself, 100%. Love others. Always love others, even if they do wrong. And be true to yourself. That's it. Rob, thank you so much for jumping on this interview. I know you're a busy guy. So I appreciate you sharing the story. And I really hope that's my biggest wish is that with right now, in someone's ears, listening to this, help make an impact, maybe plant the seed towards recovery, whether it's recovery from addiction to alcohol or drugs or, or recovery from depression, whatever recovery. I hope that we've made it a positive impact on somebody. It doesn't, doesn't have to always get as bad for you to realize that you need to shift your things around. You know, Rob's story is, is incredible. Yeah, kind of, yeah. That's kind of what I, all I have. So thank you once again. Thank you for jumping on the show. And thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for listening to today's episode on the Success Inspired Podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed this interview and you found it impactful and you feel like this could help somebody else by listening to this, then please, please share it with your mates. You know, share it in your socials. All the links are on the, on the page. You know, share it with anybody that you think that would, would benefit from listening. Okay, so for any show notes, any links, I'm going to put Rob's links in. So if, if any of you out there that's like need help, you know, his, his clinics around the world, Zurich, Ma Manchester, Mallorca, and then two in Texas, you can reach out to him for help. And you don't have to live there. You know, I'm pretty sure Rob has stuff that he does online. Uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'll be surprised if he doesn't. Yeah, you, you have that yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, definitely. So, so for any show notes, any links, any extra tips, anything like that to help you accomplish more in life and realize your true potential, please go to successinspiredpodcast.com. And uh, Rob's website is robkelly.com. That's R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y.com. Um, so thank you and have a great rest of your day, everybody.